O Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Forgive us today, Lord, for our sins that we've committed this week, for we have fallen short in word and thought and in deed. We know the things that we should be doing according to your word, but in our weakness we do them not. We love too much the pleasures and comforts of this world, and so we fail to demonstrate the character of Christ in all that we do. We fail to read your word. We fail to put away the deeds of the flesh. We fail to show forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. We fail to guard our tongues from words that tear others down instead of building them up. For these and the many other sins we've done this week, we ask that in your mercy, you would forgive us, cleanse us, and turn our hearts to you and Selah. Lord, your word tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So hear our prayer and confession and grant us forgiveness and deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. We have indeed died with Christ and we've been buried with him into his death so that as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. This means that we are no longer slaves to sin. Christ, who died for you, has set you free from sin. That newness of life means that we will live with him and will be made like him in the resurrection. Being in Christ means that there is no condemnation. No longer must we set our minds on the things of the flesh, but we can now set our mind on the things of the Spirit, who dwells in you. The Spirit helps our weaknesses and indeed in, and intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And no longer are we slaves to sin and death, because he who conquered sin and death has set his love upon you. And we know that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. The reading of God's word to us begins in Genesis chapter 1. Verses 24 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the living, every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. 
And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw, saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We'll turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read verses 20 through 28. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are, who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Now, if you would, please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation, Psalm 133. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please remain standing as we sing praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Good morning again. If you would bow with me in prayer, let's beseech our Lord for ears to hear. Father, we pray that as we come before you, that you would speak to us through the living and abiding word, our Savior, help us to hear you and to, uh, to obey. We know that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. It changes us. And so we pray that you would do that this morning out of your love and because you promised to. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was not very happy last week with... with uh, the sermon on Psalm 24. It's one of my favorite psalms. And uh, so one of the things I'd like to do this week is clean up some of what I wanted to say in my sleepy stupor. But bigger than that, we're coming to the end of this section of Psalm 15 through 24, so I want to wrap this up. We will come back to the next series of psalms in the Psalter. But in all of this, I also have grand plans to talk about the application within the church. So thinking about how God does all of the things that he promised and calls us to 
in 15 through 24. So the outline of today's sermon, will we're going to look at, at what the church is through the lens of these psalms, and then the obligations of being part of the church, and then finally the benefits of being in Christ's church. And hopefully we'll narrow that down. There are very practical applications of this because God calls us to be in his body locally. Psalm 24, we're going to come back to it in just a minute, but if you remember the middle of it, what God is looking for, he says that this is the generation of those who seek his face. And that, that word generation picks up from Psalm 22. He says that... that uh, his word, after Christ has died and been resurrected, his word is being proclaimed to a generation, one that's not yet born. And so you, we, we arrive at Psalm 24 with this question, are we that generation that has heard and that seek him? And I want to remind you before we go back to the Psalms what that means. God made a promise to Abraham. He covenanted with him, and the author of the Hebrews says that he made this promise and he could swear by nobody greater than himself, so he swore by himself. He said, I'll surely, I'll doubly sure make this certain with myself as the witness that I will bless you and I will multiply you. Abraham's response to that a few chapters later in chapter 11 is that he lived by faith as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of that same promise, made doubly sure because God said it. And the reason was he was seeking. He was seeking after the very thing that God promised. God said, this is what I'll do. And Abraham was looking, seeking for that city whose architect and builder is God. And so he was willing to dwell in tents in a foreign land, tramping up and down through the land, because he was seeking the face of God and the promise, the blessing that God held out to such seekers. That is what we want to be today, to seek after the face of God. Now, if you would, turn, turn with me to Psalm 24. And I'm going to use the first verse of Psalm 24 as uh, I, I want to incorporate it and see how the psalmist fully incorporates it into this, this trifold message of the psalm. This is, this is the concluding psalm of this section, and I, I, want, I want us to understand then a little bit more about what this verse entails. David begins the psalm this way, The earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Last week I briefly took you back to Genesis 1, but in meditating on what this verse means to the question of who can ascend and what does it mean to seek the face of God and who is this king of glory, it occurred to me that there's a little bit more here. There's, there's two words, the earth, the arets, and the, the world, the tebel, and the earth the earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof, the world and, and its inhabitants. And then he tells us the first one, the earth, the, the, the land is founded on the seas, and the world is established on the rivers. And so thinking back to, to Genesis, I'm not going to go reread it for you, but 
In Genesis, that corresponds then to chapter 1 and chapter 2. The earth, God founded. He separated the land from the sea. He founded it by word, by his word. He separated it from the waters, the waters above, the waters below, and then he separated the waters to form the land, the dry land on which all of creation then was established. If you move to the second chapter, he formed the inhabitants of the land, and he did so on the rivers. If you remember the Garden of Eden, it's, it's got four rivers running, running around it from the mountain above, and all earthly inhabitants there, Adam and Eve, were founded. They were established on those rivers. And thinking then through, through this connection, the earth is Yahweh's and its fullness and the world and those who dwell in it. And I have a bit more to say here. But what is that fullness? Last time I related it to the fullness of the, the, the produce of the earth. So the grain that grows out of the ground that God made. But there's, there's more to it than that. So you remember what God commanded Adam and Eve. He, he, he made them in his image. And then he said, what I want you to do is be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, and rule. That filling, so you're expanding out in fruitfulness, filling up the earth, that, that filling makes sense in, light, in the light of the passage that Hyde read. So I want you to flip to 1 Corinthians 15. And just to remind ourselves of the vision of what God is doing. What is that fullness that belongs to him? And what does it have to do with the king of glory entering into, ascending the holy hill? What's the relationship? 1 Corinthians 15 as, in verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has established all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be abolished is death. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subject to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. So Paul looks at this vision for the future, and he says, what, what's going on? is Christ has come, and he's, gonna, he's, he's the first fruits, and he's going to raise up after him a host. Each in his own order, first Christ, and then those who are Christ at his coming, and then comes the end. And what Christ is going to do is he's going to fulfill Genesis 1. He's multiplying, being fruitful, filling, subduing, and ruling. But the end of that picture is that all things are subject to him, and then he bows in submission to the Father, and all things are then in submission to the Father. So this was the goal of mankind from the very beginning, that the earth would be filled 
and that all would be subdued. Subdued and submission are, are, are the same, same idea. It's the same, same concept. It's just that you're subduing somebody else, whereas when you talk about submission, you're submitting yourself, so it's reflexive. And subjection then begins with self, and it spreads through the world. That, and that's what, Jesus, that's what Jesus fulfills. He's filling up the earth. He does so by calling a host. He's the first fruits, and after that, all those who are Christ at his coming, he abolishes all rule. That means he rules over everything, all authority and all power, and then he reigns. And when he has put all enemies under his feet, then, then when it's evident that he's put all things in subjection under his feet, that's a quote from Psalm 8, so he is the glorified true man, then he abolishes death, the last enemy, and turns over the kingdom to God. So when David says the earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof, the world and all those who inhabit it, we're looking at this end. We're moving towards this picture of the city whose architect and builder is God so that there are only two directions. All will be subject to God the Father. All. Either through abolishment and death and judgment or by submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, proclamation that he is Lord and bowing under his feet, and then Jesus will turn us over in submission to his Father. It says that the purpose of this, in verse 28, is that God may be all in all. That phrase is picked up by Paul again in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, He's made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So again, Paul's thinking about this, this same idea, the summation, the putting of all things into Christ so that all is subject to Him, everything in heaven and on earth, and the administration by which he does this in, in the letter to the Ephesians is the church. Jesus makes his body, and he establishes it by putting all in subjection to him, so that when you get to the end of Ephesians chapter 1, and look in verse 22, you see this same language. After Christ has been raised, after he's been raised up above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion and every name that is named, not only now but also all the way into the future, he's put all things in subjection under his feet and he's given him as head. So God gives Jesus his head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Genesis 1, Psalm 24, Ephesians 1, 1 Corinthians 15, we're all looking at the same thing. God made the earth. He put man in it to fill it so that that fullness could be turned over to him. Jesus is the true Adam who accomplishes this task, and he does it through the administration of his body. And that's, that's important. So, when we think about Abraham, who was a seeker, he was seeking the city whose architect and builder is, is God, and so therefore God was not ashamed to be called his God, because he sought for the very thing that God promised, Hebrews 11. Now, what is God calling us to seek for? That same city, 
whose architect and builder is God, so that we can enter in. We seek after the face of the God of Jacob. And that means that our whole life then rose in concert to this end. And I, I want to show you a little bit about how that works. So what's going on there? So turn back with me to the Psalms. And I want to go to Psalm 19 now. How does Jesus do this? The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Psalm 19, verse 1. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth and their utterance to the end of the world. You should notice then a repetition of those same two words. Earth and world. The arets and the tebel. So the heavens are proclaiming one thing, the glory of God. And that message, the voice goes out to the very ends of the earth and the utterance goes to the end of the world. So there is no place which is hidden from this proclamation from the heavens, the glory of God. You see, God made us for worship. He gives us rules so that we might fill and rule the, of the world for the end that we're back in subjection under his feet, worshiping him. This is the end of mankind, and it's the one that Jesus is bringing us to, that this message which the heavens are proclaiming, that God is the one of glory. That's our end, that we, we proclaim with him, that indeed God is glorious. Piper says it, that, that we, we, we enjoy God forever. It's the same idea, that we live in his house, worshiping him forever. So the earth is Yahweh's in its fullness. And if we, like Abraham, by faith, grasp a hold of God's promise, then we're clinging to that. The city whose architect and builder is God, which right now Jesus is bringing about in the administration, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's doing this work among us right now, calling us in submission to him so that in the last day, he puts to death, death itself, and submits the whole world incorporated in Christ, his body, unto God the Father. We are pursuing that. We grasp a hold of it like Abraham so that we are willing to live in tents, to wander here, there, to and fro. None of it matters. And I'm going to come to that in just a minute. Psalm 19, verse, verse 5. And, it's really interesting. I, I've been highlighting the structure of these psalms. This is one more observation. You remember that Psalm 15 through 24 rises in a chiasm, and Psalm 19 is the center. So that 15 to 24, you have the bookends of the entrance. But if you look at these three significant psalms in, in this chiastic structure, they're all related. Psalm 15 has the entrance requirements given by the law. Who can enter? Psalm 19 adds to that. Not just the law, that's the second half of the section, is what the law says, so how God is using the law, but he adds to that what creation says. So in the beginning of, of, of Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the, the glory of God. Now if you can stuff it all in your mind, think about Psalm 24 then. Psalm 24 begins with the creation. The earth is Yahweh's. Now the heavens are proclaimed, the earth is receiving this message that God is the one of glory. Glory. 
It all belongs to him. And then we move to the law, the entrance requirements for his house, and we come to the culmination then of that picture of all that the heavens have told the earth coming to fruition in Jesus, the first fruits entering the house and after him, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, bringing all behind. He enters in, and just as a teaser for whenever we get back to the Psalms, the next section, it shows us this worked out. So the center of that next section is Psalm 29. And if you all have memorized the whole Psalter, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. The voice of the Lord thunders. He thunders like many waters. And then he goes through, and it's a, it's a creation psalm all about how God speaks in creation with the end of it that all in his temple cry out glory. It's the same message, the one that the heavens are declaring to the earth, received by the earth so that all who come in, they cry this same thing, glory. The king of glory has come in. He's submitting himself to God the Father, the God of glory. That's where we're headed. Now, how does he do it? In Psalm 19, verse 4, in the heavens that are proclaiming this message of the glory of God, he places a tent for the sun. That's, that tent is the same, same idea, same word for the one that we're asking. Who can ascend? Who can enter that tent? In them he's placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course, rising from one end of the heavens and its circuit is to the other, and there's nothing hidden from its feet. So this is accomplished in creation, but it's brought to fruition through Jesus. The sun is a reminder of what Jesus, the morning star, is doing. He comes out of the tent of God, and he runs his course across the heavens to the, from one end to the other, and he cries out about the glory of God. He is like a bridegroom coming for his bride. He's like a strong man that vanquishes every foe in his midst. And if you look through these psalms, you'll see that language, the strong man, the gibor, the giborah of God coming to rescue his people. He's the strong man that wipes out those who stand in his way. And he calls them then into subjection to himself. Okay. Psalm 24, 1 again. The earth is Yahweh's. Sorry, one more thing before we go there. I wanted to make this point. Since I don't get to come back, I have to say everything I want to say. Jesus is pictured here as the son, as a bridegroom. And I, I, I think, it's been half a year since we looked at this psalm, I think at the time I mentioned the, the fulfillment at Pentecost and the tongues of fire as little sons hovering then over the apostles. But what you see is that God does this in, in it, it, he's doing it really across the whole globe. But he accomplishes it through lampstands. Just as King David was a lampstand reflecting the work of the sun that signs on high, he says in, in 2 Samuel 23, we notice that in Psalm 18, that likewise David is like the sun to the nation of Israel. In Revelations, we find out that God places churches as lampstands. Now, we're not talking about just the global church, but individual local churches. He makes as lampstands to proclaim this message. Who is the king of glory? Jesus. 
Jesus is the King of glory. We proclaim it internally and externally as a reflection of this work of the Son, Jesus, in and through us. He leads his bodies now as lampstands which have filled up the arets and the tebel. They're growing and growing and growing. This is what God is doing. All things must be placed in subjection under his feet. Okay, turn with me to 1 Corinthians now. So there's some very practical implications of this. The earth is Yahweh's in its fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in it. We belong to God. If we want, if we want, to, uh, if we want to abide in him, we submit ourselves before this God of glory ahead of the end, ahead of the time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We do it now in submission to our Father. Paul uses this verse, the earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof, in his epistle to the church at Corinth. And it's enlightening then in thinking about how we relate to what God is calling us to. Remember, we're grasping a hold of the future where all is put in submission to Jesus and then subjected to the Father. What does that mean along the way? What does that mean for us? And uh, Paul has something to say. It, it has to do with liberty. In chapter 6, he said that, that uh, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I'll be mastered by none. Keep that, keep that in mind. In chapter 8, he picks up the question of what can you eat? Can you eat food sacrificed to idols? There's a liberty there, and, and that's the question we want to ask is what, what does that liberty mean in light of the future that God is calling us to? And don't worry, I'm, I'm getting to a point now. I'll actually make it this time. So look, at, look with me in verse 14. This is his command. My beloved, flee from idolatry. He's just given the example of the nation of Israel as they are running through the wilderness. God, God brought them into Moses through the Red Sea and then fed them through the wilderness. He fed them spiritual food and spiritual drink, which he says, from the rock, which is Christ. So he fed them from Christ, and yet God was not well pleased with most of them. They were laid low. They, they got put to death in the wilderness. And those things are examples for us so that we will not be idolaters as some of them were. Because on Mount Sinai, when God went up and gave the commandments to Moses, the people craved evil things, and they sat down to play. They built a golden calf, and they had an orgy at the base of God's mountain. Now, Paul says to us, therefore, observing these things, do not flee from idolatry. And our first inclination is that's pretty, pretty simple, right? We're not, we're not going to a mountain to construct a golden calf and have an orgy, so we're good. We need to flee from idolatry. But in, in exegeting that command, there's something very interesting that happens here. He says in verse 15, I speak to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing, a koinonia, in the body of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? It seems like he switched topics. Flee from idolatry, but now his declaration is, Judge what I say, as wise men, 
when we partake of the body and the cup, aren't we sharing in, in the body and the blood of Christ? We're made one. We have a share then in one another. Verse 17, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of that one bread. We're, we're wrapped up together at the table so that our share with Christ is bound up in our share with one another. You can't, you can't take the two and separate them apart so that I have a part in Christ, but I have no part with believers. It's impossible. Then he says in verse 18, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to become sharers in demons. So he says, we eat at the table, at the altar, like the Levites ate, and you have a share then. You have a part. You have fellowship with God. So the nation of Israel, they did that. They, they ate the sacrifices, and there was communion then with God, and we have that same kind of communion. But then he says the Gentiles, they do this too. They eat at a table, and they have communion with demons. So they, they, they come to a table, they offer sacrifices, and they commune with demons, and there can't be any mixing because you can't bring the demon or the harlot from chapter 6 into fellowship with God. It's no good. If you do, there's only death and destruction. You cannot, verse 21, drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? So now we got it, right? Flee from idolatry. You can't eat at two tables. You have to eat at the table of the Lord or the table of demons. You can't partake of both. But he's not done. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. It's picking up from chapter 6. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own, his own what? his own profit, which we'll see in just a few verses. Let no one seek his own profit, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. So you go to the market, don't ask where it came from. Eat. For the earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof. It's a really strange verse to quote from a majestic psalm in which God is calling us into his presence, calling us to proclaim the glory of the King of Kings. And here he quotes that verse, first verse, the earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof. And it has to do with the, the, the nature of what God made, so the ontology, how God made it, and the teleology. If you remember a year ago, I gave definitions to those, so I'm sure you all remember exactly what they mean. So where God is bringing the earth. So from, from beginning to end, the earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof. He's bringing all of the earth and all the fullness, everything we make, all people, all things, in subjection to him. That is what we're made for. And so Paul says what that means is the meat in the marketplace that's been sacrificed to idols, well, it won't contaminate you. It's part of that creation which belongs to God, made by God, made for God. And so... If you go to the meat market and you, you get it there, eat. Eat and, and you're free. But if one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat, eat it. Eat it there too. Now you know what it is. So it's not just the, the lack of knowing. 
Eat without asking questions for conscience sake, but if anyone should say to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other ones. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning the thing for which I give thanks? So this is the, this is the question. Aren't, aren't we bound by our own conscience? So as long as I can eat and give thanks, am I not free? But Paul says, no. Paul says, yes, in, in essence, because of the nature and the end of what was made, we're free. There's no sin in eating, and it can't contaminate you. If you happen to be wearing a Morona or, or whatever the latest brand of Target t-shirt is, it doesn't make you a demon-worshipping transgender. It doesn't contaminate that way. But when we're brought into the body of Christ, there is an, an obligation now in which we're subjected not just based on our own conscience, which we can go to Psalm 24 and we can say there's freedom here, but now we're obligated to one another's consciences. There's a loss of liberty that is involved in Jesus bringing us together. It's voluntarily set aside, and he says, whatever then you do, eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Remember, for this same purpose, working toward the end of all things for the glory of God and subjection to Jesus, being subject to the Father, crying out in his temple, glory, do it all for that end. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but that of many that they may be saved. The goal is not just bringing myself into God's house, but the whole body, all wrapped up together, matured into, into the body of Christ, subject under his feet. And so implied in here is along the way, we're just by being here obligated to one another. There's a loss of freedom. All right, turn with me now to Psalm 15. By the way, thinking about Abraham as he pursued the city whose architect and builder is God, he gave up on some of his liberty. Right? He left, he left his home. He pursued God into a foreign land, and he followed him wherever he went. I want to impress this upon us because it, it's, it's easy to proclaim that we're free. Not, not free to sin, but we're free in a much broader sense than that. But the minute you come into the presence, and, and like you saw this morning, we start, we start vowing, making promises to one another, that freedom starts shrinking because now we're stuck with one another. Well, well all of our problems, we're stuck same like you, you, you do in a marriage. You, you vow, and then you're stuck. You, you lost some freedom. Now, the, the, that loss of freedom comes with massive benefits, hopefully. But nonetheless, there is a voluntary obligation. Okay, Psalm 15. O Yahweh, who may abide in your tent? 
who may dwell on your holy hill, who you who walks with integrity, who works righteousness, who speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. He does, evil, he does not evil to his neighbor. He does not take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt. He does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. So here, if you remember all the way back to January, we have a list of ten things, a decalogue of entrance requirements reminding us of the law. Who, who can come into that tent? Who can abide on his holy hill? Who can be part of the bride that the bridegroom swinging across the, se- the, the, the heavens, crying out glory, comes and picks up and brings back into his tent? And we can't downgrade these things We can't say, well, now we're in the New Testament, Jesus has died and we're forgiven, so these no longer apply. God is God. He's righteous, absolutely. But instead, we are looking forward to this entrance, and what we need to do is grasp a hold of that so that we live according to what's said here now. Jesus is calling us as the bride to come with him, to enter his house and this is what that looks like. So we can't live in, uh, in disconcert with the future that God is calling us to. Some things matter and some things don't. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says the food that you eat, well, it doesn't really matter unless, unless it's going to cause the body to stumble, thereby bringing to destruction the very, the very administration, the very group of people that Jesus is putting in subjection under his feet, then it matters, because that's what endures. And so you look at this list, and it's split up in uh, 3313. It's the, the pattern. So there's, there's three commands, he who walks with integrity. It's the wholeheartedness. There's, there's tamim. We spend a lot of time talking about that word. He's not double-minded if you take the James speak. So he doesn't, he doesn't say in the one hand, I trust God and I'm pursuing this end. And then the other hand, say, I don't want any of these people because they're sinners. Because God's calling us all together. We can't, we can't go apart from one another. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he doesn't, he doesn't self-deceive. Uh, the young people, we were memorizing 1 John, and this is one of the primary messages then of 1 John. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth's not in you. If you say you, you know God and you don't keep his commandments, that you're a liar too and the truth is not in you. And if you say you know him, if you say you abide in him and you hate your brother, you're in the darkness until now. You, you, you're self-deceiving. So even in these internal attributes in which we're, we're whole-minded, we're righteous, and we speak truth, its outworking is with people. We say it to God. We love God. We want Him absolutely. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's pure. We want His in. But the way that He's bringing it about is through people. The body of Christ brought together. He doesn't slander with His tongue. Remember, that means take up your foot and spy on your neighbor so you don't go out and try to spy out trouble on them like, like the Israelites did to the wicked. Instead, you're one. Like in a marriage, who don't bring each other's faults to make them shamed. Instead, the goal is all together 
being brought in submission to Christ, leaving no one behind. He does not slander with his tongue, spy out with his foot. He does no evil to his neighbor. He does not take up a reproach against that same neighbor. And so now you have the outward-facing requirements of the one another's. How do we deal with one another? Skipping number seven for a minute, then we come to now not just with the tongue, how you deal with one another, but with your money, the the stuff that hurts. Some of you are good with the tongue and bad with the money. Some are bad with the money and good with the tongue. you got to do both. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, God did that to Abraham. He swore by himself since there was no, great, no one greater so that it might be doubly sure. And he will not change. That is the assurance on which we rest, by which we walk through any wilderness, that God will not change. And that gets to the heart of this. If you remember from Psalm 15, if you look at this series of Psalms, what you discover is that the benefit amidst all these obligations is that we're saying this to one another. These are our neighbors. This is what we do. We won't slander you. We won't spy you out. We won't take up a reproach. We won't do evil. We're going to swear and do you no hurt. We won't put out our money at interest. We won't take up a bribe against the innocent. We'll take care of the poor so there's no needy among us. We're obligating ourselves so our freedom shrinks down and down and down. But the benefit makes it blow up again because the benefit is that God is our neighbor. He swears to this same thing. He swore by himself to his own hurt, and he will not change. And you see that in the subsequent Psalms we'll try to emphasize that here just briefly before I run out of time. Verse 4, so this one's set apart because in, in this we see the story of Psalm 16, 17, and 18. In whose eyes a, retrobate, a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. So when you think about the summation of what God calls us to with one another, we honor those who fear him. There's a separation of in and out. And this is what God does for us. So think about the logic of the next three psalms. David calls out to God, and he says, I have a clean hand and pure heart, and yet all these enemies are surrounding me. Tear the heavens down and come rescue me. And that's exactly what God does. He honors what he said. He swore to his own hurt he will not change. When David is in trouble, he rips up the earth. He makes furrows in the channels of the sea. He comes on the heavens with his fiery tharts and darts and, 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 and thunders. And he rescues his beloved. What's happening here is the benefits of God's house they flow outward so that even before the end, before all things are in subjection, before we're brought finally and fully after Christ, the first fruits, we start receiving the benefits of fellowship with God because, because he does these things for us. He doesn't put out his money at interest. He doesn't take up a bribe against the enemy at the <laughs> The innocent, he doesn't sneak up to spy us out like an enemy. Instead, he acts as our neighbor, as our friend. And when there's trouble, we call on him and say, God, you promised, and he answers. Now, how does he answer? Those, those are the obligations. We're, we're obligated to one another. And it means, in some sense, this loss of freedom, which we're giving up because we want the end which God made us for. 
we do those things, we'll never be shaken. Remember, the heavens and the earth will shake in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, but we've received a kingdom that will not be shaken. We grasp a hold of that kingdom, which, which endures, as we find out in the Psalms, through death into life. It's eternal. It will not be removed because the God who's building it swore by himself, and he will not change. So David, in Psalm 16, picks this up. How does it work itself out? He says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in thee. That makes sense, right? We're, we want to be in the presence of God. We want God to be obligated to us. And he willingly obligates himself to us. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord, my Adonai. I have no good besides thee. So th th there is no good apart from him. There's no salvation. There, there's, there's nothing to be desired apart from him. And then in Psalm 16, there's this strange interjection. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another will be multiplied, and I shall not pour out their libation of blood, nor shall I take their name upon my lips." It sounds remarkably similar to Psalm 15, in whose eyes a reprobate will be despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. We're looking for all fullness to be brought in subjection to him. That means all of us here, gathered together in a lampstand, proclaiming the glory of God. And David says, as for the saints of the land, and if you think about David's life, those saints of the land frequently did him no favors. As for the saints of the land, of the earth, they are rets. They are majestic ones in whom is all my delight. He delights in God's people. Furthermore, frequently God dispenses his blessings and fulfills his obligations through those very same people. If you, if you sum up what God says he'll do, it's the same, same things we see in the shepherd psalm in Psalm 23. He's going to provide for us. So he, 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 he leads us to quiet waters. He leads us into good, good green pastures. He gives us rest, so he feeds us. He protects us from the enemies gathering around and he, he guides us. He has fellowship, communion with us. They're the same three things that a husband is to give to a wife, food, protection, and conjugal rights. It's the same picture that now transported, and God is giving us those things right now, the blessings of the future brought into the presence through the body of Christ. As for the saints of the land, they're excellent ones in whom is all my delight. If we want to grasp a hold of what God is calling us to, of the future, of all things in submission under his feet, then this is how we do it. Delight in God's people. Call on God, and remember I, I, I told you, uh, God said there would be no needy in the land. Why? Because he said take care of the needy. And he does it through his people. As, as we submit to him, we give up for one another and God provides. He leads. He guides. You can see this in, uh, in Psalm 17. David calls on God. 
Verse 2, let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with, look with equity. You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You've tested me and you find nothing. I've purposed with my mouth that I will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by, thy word, by the word of your lips I've kept from the past of the violent and my steps have, not, have held fast to your paths and my feet have not been shaken. David says, I've done these. I'm acting in accordance with Psalm 15. And yet, the lions surround me. So he calls on God, and in Psalm 18, God answers. He comes to, comes to him in, in the cloud, and uh, Psalm 18, you remember, is split in two parts. You see what God is doing behind the scenes, and then with David, you see, you see how God does it. He trains his arms for battle. So invisibly, in some sense, God is riding through the heavens to David's aid. Visibly, he's training him through his word. He's building him up. So that not just David, but all those that come after him, all those that are incorporated into him, are brought into God's house. With the end of that picture that now not just the nation of Israel in Psalm 18, but the foreigners all around that, that submit. It's that same picture. David goes out with the host now under the protection of God, and he battles and God watches over him, and the foreigners submit to him. They come trembling out of their fortresses. Out of the very gates of hell, they come forth. And David praises God in their midst. He cries out, glory. And Paul uses this in Romans 15 to talk about those same foreigners being brought into the house of God. He does it through and in his people, in the lampstands that are right now placed in the middle of the earth. And we see this picture then come to fruition through Psalm 21, 22, 23, in which we saw the individual man calling on God. Now it's wrapped up and we understand how we can fulfill Psalm 15. We come after our king. He subdues us, and then we join in that heavenly host, crying out, glory, glory to the king looking forward to the fullness of what God is bringing us to. So what, what does that mean for us today? We see this big grand plan of God, and it's good. We, we should want to want this future. But God works it out practically now in and among us. If we hate one another, we have no part in that future. We're in the darkness even until now. God calls us into this fellowship not alone. Our share with Christ, partaking at the table, we, we're going to see that worked out in us. But it's together. So we've placed some emphasis then on membership. Not not because this church is all that God is doing. But because when we choose to follow God, when we grasp a hold of what he's calling us do, to do, we have to do that locally. There's teeth in it. And so then we have to choose. Will I obey here with these people, with these broken people? Will, be I, will I be limited by them? Because that's what happens in 1 Corinthians 10. We gather around the table... And those believers that gathered together, 
they were obligated to one another to the point where their, their freedom was given up for the sake of this purpose. The earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof. And so all those who seek his face, this generation, if we seek his face, this is what he promises. You will lift up a blessing from God. And then he calls on us. He says, how do you lift it up? Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O future doors. Because the king of glory has come in. He calls on us to look to that future in which we're both at the gate and we're in the host coming behind, grasping a hold of what God promised because that city is good. We want it like Abraham wanted. We want God in his holiness and his splendor to dwell in our midst. And it is what we're made for to be subject to him. In that, we will be satisfied. Remember what David said, whether I go through life or death, he says, you, you promised to me, you won't let your Holy One undergo decay, but, Psalm 17 now, when I awake, I will see your face and I will be satisfied with your likeness. If you would stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you today that the Lord of glory, the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father, robed in righteousness, walks in our midst. Thank you for the promises that we see that we can sing about. That you, you promise to us, you obligate yourself to us, and it's mind-blowing to think that the God of the universe would swear to us, to his own hurt, to such a hurt that Jesus would come and die on the cross, that he would endure abandonment, covenant-breaking from all of us, for us. Father, we pray that you would help us as we seek the future that you promise, the city whose architect and builder is you, the one whose, whose walls are made out of precious stones, whose gates are pearls. Lord, help us to see how you're bringing that about in our midst and help us in our seeking it, not to deny the very means by which you're doing it right now. Lord, we want those benefits. We want the blessing that comes from your hand for those who seek your face. So help us to do that today as we look at one another and see your spirits work in each other's faces and as we call one another to, to repentance and to, to blessing as we encourage the weak and lift up the faint-hearted. Lord, help us to do that as unto you and to cry out with the heavens that you are the God of glory and we're made for you. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus, who is doing this work. Amen.